Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how breakthroughs here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm John Worsey. It's hard to deny that the world is facing a number of global environmental challenges, and often the best way to identify, monitor and solve those challenges is not here on Earth, but from the air. Today we catch up again with Professor Richard Tew, a geomorphologist and remote sensing scientist at the School of Environment, Geography and Geosciences here at the University of Portsmouth. If your local team has put a drone up within hours of the disaster happening and have collected the necessary data along the roads of all the damage to bridges and houses and then give that information to the incoming international response teams, you save many lives because 24 hours, 48 hours means you do things faster, you save more lives. With a background in geology and geography, Richard found himself in Sierra Leone looking for diamonds. Mapping has always been important to his work, whether traditional or technological. In the modern world of drones and satellite imagery, Richard is helping to identify environmental challenges, assisting in humanitarian disasters and even fighting crime. As we'll find out in this episode, the kind of aerial data needed will often need a combination of different technologies and effective training for experts and residents of affected countries. As a professor of geoinformatics and disaster risk reduction, with decades of experience behind him, Richard is leading the way in the use of modern technology. And one of the advantages of 21st century technology is the shift in the cost of mapping and imagery. We are living in something of a golden age for space technologies that can assist with mapping the, and monitoring the Earth. In the early days, going back into, say, the 1980s and 1990s, it was very expensive to get the data. It wasn't particularly detailed, but there was a huge cost barrier to getting the data. So a country in Africa, a low-income country, would really struggle to afford all the satellite imagery, and even many companies struggled with it. I, I did some work in the mining sector early on, and it was still quite a hefty charge. You know, £2,000 for a satellite scene covering 100 miles by 100 miles is, is quite a bit of money if you've then got a map 10,000 square miles or larger areas of a country. But a lot of that data is now free. NASA and European Space Agency, ESA, have made their data freely available. So we now have free data so you can map very large areas of the Earth's surface and monitor it on a regular basis. A lot of the software is now free as well. That used to cost thousands of pounds. Some of it still does, but you can get free alternatives. We do a lot of work with that, looking at ways of using those new space technologies looking at different parts of the spectrum, visible, infrared, thermal infrared, and we use that then for mapping and monitoring areas that are particularly problematic and set up where we can early warning systems or we give advice on how to build back better so that you can recover faster if a disaster does occur. And while satellite pictures have an important role in mapping and monitoring, the growing use of something closer to the Earth is also a key part. The Uncrewed Aircraft System, or UAS, is, put simply, a drone. Whether they come in the form of a helicopter or a fixed-wing aircraft, they're substantially smaller than their full-size alternatives. And once again, there's a cost and safety benefit with the UAS. They've revolutionised things in that they're easy to use, they're cheap, and they're very mobile, so you can use them anytime. And that's why we use them an awful lot in assessing hazards where it's too dangerous to, to walk, like landslides around cliffs and things like that. 
the drone can safely fly over that area. Or if we need rapid information, say for a fire or something like that, again, where it's dangerous to get in. Or if we need a lot of detail about an area down to centimetre level of detail, it can give us that information too. But there are some things that simply can't be seen by using a regular drone or satellite image. And as Richard explains, that's where Earth observation using space technology comes in. The radar, for instance, is really useful because it will see through cloud cover. So we've been using a combination of different sensors on satellites, some of them in what we call visible wavelengths, to monitor illegal activities in Colombia for illegal gold mining. But it's in an area of rainforest, very bad for the rainforest. It's a type of ecocide that's going on there because of the stampede to get gold out and the devastation caused. But because it's rainforest and often cloudy, it's very hard for us to see what's happening using standard satellite imagery. We just see the top of the cloud. Every now and then you get a break in the cloud and you might then be able to understand what's happening down on the ground, but it is quite difficult. Whereas if you use radar satellite remote sensing, the radar will see through the cloud and then we can see quite clearly what's happening on the ground. We can see where the rainforest is, we can see where it's being chopped down, we can see the metal of the mining equipment that goes into the areas to get the gold out and after they've dug the gold out on floodplain or whatever and the area floods, we can say, well, this is now water where it used to be rainforest. Not only can these resources be used to monitor and report on criminal activity, they can also be deployed after natural disasters to help communities on the ground. And this is something that's been adopted by the University of Portsmouth, who've trained a versatile team. They first deployed after a disaster in the Caribbean back in 2018, looking at damage after Hurricane Maria destroyed something like 90% of the vegetation cover and housing in Dominica, we did an assessment of damage there and the drone data was really important because we could look before and after. We had some earlier drone footage and we could then quantify where the changes were, what had happened, where most of the damage was and, and the drone really helped with that. We've also been using it for looking at seagrass flying around the coast and trying to pick out the areas where there are seagrass and quite often we then use visible and infrared sensors on the drone and we can then link that back to the satellite imagery. The satellite might be 300, 400 kilometers up and might be, rather than looking at centimeter detail, is maybe looking at detail of three meters or 10 meters. But understanding what's happening with the drone footage allows us to better understand what's happening with the satellite imagery. So they fulfill a very useful role fitting between the detail we get with our own eyes from the detail we get from maybe being 100 metres up with a drone to the detail we then get from a satellite that could be 300 kilometres up. And when it comes to uncrewed aircraft systems in the field, it's unsurprisingly a more complex process than simply putting an individual shot-bought drone into the air. There's likely to be a number of machines operating at the same time with some cutting-edge technology on board. You have to figure out well, what is the most effective way to use drones, probably two or three drones working together perhaps as a team. How do you get the drones to cover the largest area possible as quickly as possible in the day or so after a disaster has occurred? You still probably need the radar imagery telling you where the areas are where there's flooding so you can focus the resources on those areas. But there are lots of things we can now do with drones such as different types of sensor to see where there are people. Maybe thermal sensors can say, well, look, there are people and animals down here. That's a priority area for sending in more detailed survey teams and rescuing those people. Uh, or it could be you could have a drone which is specialised and can swoop down into areas where there's been flooding and sample the water in that area, the flood water, 
and then see if it's an area near a village, if that particular new lake or pond is contaminated and if it's water that they should not be drinking. Maybe you could use another drone to deliver pills and tablets that can be used to sterilise the waters. While Richard and his team's expertise is essential in these scenarios, there are often valuable resources available in the communities on the ground. With the experts and residents working together, many more lives can potentially be saved in the aftermath of a disaster than would have been possible otherwise. We've done some work in Vanuatu, where we realised that should a volcano erupt or there'd be a cyclone if it hit that island or an earthquake or a tsunami, locally there are often people who can use drones for whatever reason. Maybe they're hobbyists and they get money from tourists coming in when they do drone footage of the tourist walking around the volcano. And with a bit of training, those same people could know exactly what information to collect with their drone after their island has been affected by one of those natural disasters. And that is really important because internationally there'll be teams deploying to fly out to that island, but it's going to take them one day, two days before they can arrive, before the local airport can be cleared of debris and things like that. And if your local team has put a drone up within hours of the disaster happening and have collected the necessary data along the roads of all the damage to bridges and houses and then give that information to the incoming international response teams, you save many lives because 24 hours, 48 hours means you do things faster, you save more lives. You've already heard how natural disasters and the reporting of illegal activity can be dealt with using a range of mapping technologies. But there's another sector that can benefit from Richard's work, as he explains. They're using satellites now to track the operations of copper producing companies, say copper mining companies. And you can do that by looking to see what are the stockpiles at the mine of the copper that they're mining. They may have had strikes, they may have had problems with earthquakes disrupting the mining activity or something, and if their production goes down, there'll be people in the City of London saying, well, that means there'll be a shortage of copper, therefore the price will go up, and they're already looking to predict what the price will be, say, on the futures market. So there's an application there straight away. There are ready applications as well with the insurance industry, and for that, the insurance industry... New types of insurance, faster insurance, mean that they will insure an area and if a certain threshold of damage is crossed, then they'll automatically pay out. They won't send in loss adjusters to spend one month or so reviewing the damage, writing reports and stuff like that. If you use satellite imagery to show that within a day or so of that disaster occurring, there has been 60 or 70% damage in that area, then the insurance company will pay out within days. And that's really important as well for getting small businesses, farmers and the like, back up and running again and getting their businesses going. So that's just a a couple of examples. And what does the future hold for applications of this kind of technology? Richard suggests the continued development of mapping will combine disciplines down on Earth with innovations up in space. Have you heard of tiny satellites called CubeSats? It is a golden age in that the sensors are getting so small you can now get CubeSats and CanSats, not much bigger than a can of Coca-Cola, which can have a very basic sensor on it. But if you put hundreds of them up, which is something that an organization called Planet.com are doing over in the US, you can get near worldwide coverage and you can certainly then get daily coverage if necessary. That is quite exciting. Developing different types of sensors. There's a team here at the university working with astrophysicists who are looking at developing innovative types of CubeSats or CanSats that could then piggyback on top of other launches. And we're even getting to the stage in the UK where we're going to make our own 
space rocket launches. There are space centres down in Cornwall and Wales and up in Scotland where we're looking to be launching our own rockets over the next few years. They're relatively small rockets, but because the payload now is so small with these CANSATs and CubeSats, we can launch a lot of them into space. So there's a bit of a revolution going on there. The other revolution that's taking place is how then to get all that information, that data in, and then process it. And then there are revolutions going on with artificial intelligence and machine learning and big data analysis, where there's a lot of work going on. Often with our astrophysicists turning away from space and looking down at the Earth and tackling some of the problems that we've got on Earth. Mapping our changing world is vital in terms of environment, recovery from natural disasters, the fight against crime, and even support for economic and financial decision-making. And space-based technology combined with the advancements here on Earth can actually save lives. There's every possibility that in the next few years, we'll be seeing UK-developed devices launched into space from Scotland or England for the benefit of the whole world. Thanks to Richard for sharing more exciting insights into the world of satellites and mapping. And thank you for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website, port.ac.uk slash research. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Catch you then.